Shane Hazen coming up on today's episode, writer, journalist, uh, critic, Tyler Coates. Um, he recently has been uh, covering Oscar campaigns for The Hollywood Reporter. Um, but first up, the news from uh, just uh, this past Saturday, uh, last week's guest, Robert Grigsby Wilson, um, the feature he edited in Sundance, um, the 40-year-old version, um, won Best Director, uh, Rada Blank. Um, so, yay! Um but uh, as for what I watched this week, um, I'm I'm trying to figure out exactly this this podcast in general. Um, like I, I want to talk about what I'm doing, uh, life story in general, and just week to week. Um, but I'm also trying a little adverse to talking politics, especially right now, going into a presidential primary and then going into the general because next year is going to be a, everyone's going to be very tribal and at, at each other's throat and um, kind of triggered by like you say you were interested in a candidate and everyone seems to identify exactly who you are at that point so but i'd be remiss if i didn't point out i'm in iowa right now and i have been um canvassing for the andrew yang campaign so yay for me um so i didn't get to watch much this week um i snuck out and saw uh, bad boys for life finally which man weren't the 80s something i mean um the 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 cocaine fueled ghost of Don Simpson is just all over that movie. Um, sorry, that was a little that was a little mean, but um, but like I really wish Michael Bay had directed that because that movie still has Michael Bay on it, and it was cool because um, uh, Joe Carnahan, who I'm a big admirer of, uh, uh, versions of his script apparently are still in it. He got a screenwriting credit on it, but um, just the weird values of that movie of just like cops killing bad guys and just shooting like those 80s cop things have not dated well and and just bad guy bad guy bad guy shoot him bad guy shoot him you know and guns solve everything just very very dated um in regards to um while i'm in iowa um uh, dave Chappelle uh, endorsed andrew yang and when he was talking about certain things that led to him he mentioned uh, american factory the documentary on netflix which is Besides Les Miserables, uh, is the last uh, movie I believe I've seen uh, that I've seen mostly Oscar stuff, and uh, so I watched it last night. And yeah, it fit in with it. Kind of fit in with the values of the campaign. I keep there's this book I like by uh, economist David Graeber called Bullshit Jobs. Uh, there's a short form. It, it came off of a short essay, which um, I highly uh, I recommend that. But it's about um, um, as we keep automating more jobs and we keep making up excuses to have jobs and make economic value based off jobs and um, it causes people to um, not do the work they want to like make a podcast that no one's going to listen to except three friends um so uh that the documentary there there were the music was a little manipulative at certain spots but otherwise it was it was fine um but um it's it, it didn't seem to it kind of addressed the stu- stupidity of a uh, of a uh, automated factories but for the most part it was also about the um increasing chinese uh u.s rivalry in um but also the ways they're working together um technique wise there wasn't anything to write home about but um uh that's been what's on been on my brain this week and i don't 
I, I'm happy I got through this without starting to uh, canvas at you because that's the language of that has been my brain all week. So um, anyway. So Tyler Coates is on the show today. He's been a writer most recently for The Hollywood Reporter, but he's he was previously an editor at uh, Esquire, uh, Decider. He's written for the Columbia Journalism Review, Slate. Um, um, he's, as I mentioned in, in the interview, what's funny is it's our first time talking to each other, but uh, we've been on an email thread with each other and a, a group of assorted friends for almost 10 years. So I almost talk to Tyler daily. I, I'm very familiar with his opinions. And... He, he details his uh, journey going to, from um, uh, really wanting to get into um, journalism and with a media bent, mainly a film bent. And it's I've been following, or I've been around his journey the entire time. And um, um, over the years, I, I've been, I'll be honest, I've been, he has in many ways the career I thought I wanted in college. I, I wanted to be, um, uh, Francois, Francois Truffaut was my, my goal. I wanted to be a film critic and a director who did both. And um, I, I hustled a little in college, but I didn't uh, to do do get some journalism gigs. I wrote um, reviews in Southern Indiana, and uh, I didn't really get beyond that point. And um, what's been fascinating with uh, watching Tyler's journey is um, much like when I tell my friends I'm working in the film industry, I'm also um, trying to be the realist to him, showing the uh, underside of it. A lot of the uh, how tough it is, the the hustling for jobs, the, uh, the the politics of it, and things like that, and all the things that um, don't get really covered. And it's very similar with Tyler, where he I get to see, he gets to describe his frustrations um, and his joys too. He's written some some of the stuff. He's right before uh, recording this, I read a piece he'd written about his father's voice that I highly recommend. Uh, I forgot he's I get to see his emails daily, so you get to see um, the work he put in. And um, the the chiseling of of of, of the voice, and um, the clearness of his thought coming across, and um, and we argue movies online. We don't really argue movies on this too much, uh, but I was mostly interested in his perspective because of the last three months he's been involved with the Oscar campaigning. Um, he's been doing red carpet stuff and things for the Hollywood Reporter and editing. So um, that's mainly what we get into um, get into this episode. So hope you enjoy it. No, that's all done. Um, Because the campaigns are over, like, basically next week. Because voting voting starts on Monday. Um, So there's, like, I mean, I still get some screening invites, but, like, all the movies are bad right now. So (laughs) it's all, like, you know, the January, February releases. So those that has definitely trickled down. Okay. I kind of... I do want to start out by pointing out that um, this is the first time we've ever talked. You and I. I know it's crazy. <laughs> I, I've, I've seen your voice on, or I've heard your voice on TV before, but this is uh-huh. the first time you and I. But the irony I want to point out is that I don't know exactly how far back, but maybe at least for the last, at least seven or nine years, you and I have been talking almost every day. Yeah, I joined the thread in like two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. I left briefly just because it was blowing up my phone, but the thread, um, so whenever I first left my hometown, uh, my close friend Dustin Lavelle got a job 
and started a thread with his friends. And around 2008, maybe around the same time as you, 2009, I got on that. And we mail each other a uh, hundred emails sometimes a day. <laughs> the goal is usually to get a hundred. And um, yeah. And I, I mean, we've also talked about this phenomenon where um, other people, you know, other people that have threads. Oh, yeah. My boyfriend has, he refers to it as the hotline. Um, but it's uh, it's just a group chat. I mean, I'm not on any other group chats with friends the way that I know a lot of people are, except for the thread, which yeah. feels sort of old fashioned because it's email. Yeah. Um, and it's for bored people at work, basically. <laughs> it was bored people at work. Where did, where were you, when did you got onto it? Where did you, where were you working at? I was working at Kaplan. So I was working with Al and Dan. I think I was on it before Dan was. Okay. Um, oh, and Chris Ballard was there. Um, and Elliot and Julia, they were all at Kaplan too. Um, yeah. So I think. Catherine, um, our friend Catherine put me on the thread. And then when she left Kaplan, she quietly removed herself from so, the thread. Were you, um, how, were you freelancing when you were at Kaplan? Um, not really. I, I think I wrote a couple of things for the all. Um, cause I started writing for them in like 2010. Um, <clears throat> which was also when I left Chicago and moved to New York. I left, uh, in September. Okay. So I had written a couple of things for the all, um, and there was a site called this recording that was not, it was just like a couple of random people who went to college together at Brown and then me, but one of them was Molly Lambert and she was writing for them. Okay. Um, but yeah, I was not really making any money freelancing at all. I was just sort of writing for free. And you just took the so. big leap to New York and then jumped into it. There? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think January of 2010, I um, I applied, I got into a graduate program at DePaul for writing and publishing because I was like, I want to be a writer or editor and I need to like have the actual training. And then I was like, oh, I don't need this at all. This is bullshit. So I, uh, um, so yeah, I quit. I just like gave notice like in the summer and was like, I'm moving to New York. So bye. And I left in like September, I think September 1st. Okay. I, I should probably be more linear in this, but I do want to, we should go start back at the beginning. Where, where Oh yeah, sure. Where are you from? Uh, so I'm from Virginia, <clears throat> this tiny town called Montrose. Uh, it's like two hours Southeast of DC. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, I, I grew up there. Uh, I went to college in Virginia at James Madison university. And then after JMU, I moved to Chicago with friends. Okay. Well, go, uh, going back to your hometown, um, did they have a mm -hmm. movie theater there or was it a drive away? No, there was one. There was like a single uh, screen theater in like two towns over in this place called Tappahannock that I saw a few things there. It closed, I think, when I was like in eighth grade. And by that point, it was like so run down, we didn't go. But I saw like... As a kid, I saw like Ninja Turtles there and Mr. Holland's Opus, like family friendly things. And then the closest cities were Fredericksburg and Richmond, which were about an hour away. And that's where we'd see like actual big movie releases. Do you um, uh, do you remember your first movie? Uh, I believe it was Bambi. Um, was it in a theater or on video? In the theater, yeah. Uh, 
because you know all those in the 80s when like the disney movies were all being re-released it was like before they started making new ones again um so i saw bambi i think i was like on vacation in like the outer banks with my family and they're like let's try this out and i was probably like three or four um your family had I to do... know what was going to happen though when you see this right Oh, yeah. I mean, like, my, my mom and her best friend who took us were, like, both in tears. I don't remember. I don't remember seeing it at all. Like, I tr- I don't have any memory. I do remember seeing Snow White and being terrified of the Wicked Witch or the Wicked Queen or whatever. Um, and that's probably my first memory of seeing a movie is you, probably Snow White. Were your family into Disney movies? Um, not really. I think it was just like the thing to go see. Um, and they were all, you know, they were all had been re-released a million million times. Like my parents had seen them already. Um, I feel like it wasn't until like, there were a few, I mean, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast are like the big, like starting off points for like the Disney Renaissance. But I definitely saw like the sort of like bad 80s um, animated movies they made like the great um rescues down mouse paper or whatever yeah rescuers down under was one oliver and company like the ones that just like don't that weren't like fairy tales they were just like original stories um or like based on like books i know a lot of animators hold those in high esteem but like i haven't i haven't i mean i kind of want to revisit them if i have a lot of time but not really i guess yeah i mean i think i mean i guess that was when like don bluth was there before he left to go work at universal maybe and he did like there was some um, overlap with brad bird at some point because uh i don't know if it was disney but it was um it was certain things that led into pixar or something along those lines because i remember brad okay. bird, brad bird was working on a spirit adaptation while he was working i might be getting this wrong i think they went to caltech or something like that but okay i mean I, yeah i feel like they all worked together so right. they all did those tours at disney too um, I mean, hell, Tim Burton was an animator there at right. in the 80s, too. Right. Um, so um, where uh, – do you remember your first musical? Uh, like play? Like in theater show? Movie. Um, or, or both, actually. Or, which, your, actually, yeah, your first exposure um, to the format. I – my mom took me to see Peter Pan in Richmond. Kathy Rigby was in it, who was, like, just an Olympi- Olympian uh, – um, God, what's the, I can't think of the word gymnast. She was a, uh, and so she played Peter Pan. Um, and then I think that was like fourth grade or so. And then I saw cats when I was like in sixth grade and that like totally like cemented my interest in musicals. Um, what do you remember thinking when you saw it? Um, I had the soundtrack already. So I sort of had a sense of like what it was, but, um, I remember, I was terrified when the cats came out into the audience. I didn't know that was going to happen like in the beginning. Um, but I was mostly just like, I was like, this is the best. <laughs> I love this. I mean, I always loved, um, I've always loved watching people perform kind of no matter what. Um, so um, that was like, sort of like the origin story there, I think probably. Um, what were your, um, what were the movies your parents liked? Or made you watch? Uh, my, I remember, as a kid, I mean, I never saw it as a kid because it's too adult, but they played the Big Chill soundtrack a lot. So I always had this sense of like them loving the Big Chill. Um, and I think I, I had probably seen the scene of like the group, the 
the cast like dancing in the um in the kitchen to the the temptations a couple of times um so i had like that like frame of reference like the music was connected to it my parents were really big into music too okay um gosh like what did my parents watch my father wasn't a huge movie fan my mom liked them but i think that like me being so into movies like has made her like more interested in them um especially in the last 10 years or so as i've been like writing professionally and she reads everything that i write so she's like being exposed to stuff that she normally wouldn't go out uh and seek her on her own do you remember Um, a specific point where you felt like i'm really starting to get into movies or i mean was it a gradual thing um god i so i remember i remember going to the video store a lot uh which in my hometown, the the first one was in like the back room at the pharmacy. Um, And I would just like go and stare at like every single cover. I mean, I I would like look at all the horror movie covers, which I knew I was never allowed to watch. And like in the eighties, they were all disgusting. Um, And uh, yeah, I kind of just like, I I was obsessed with movies and the idea of movies. I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of things. like I wasn't allowed to watch R-rated movies. PG thir- some PG thirteen movies were sort of off limits. Um, when did that restriction get lifted? I feel like PG thirteen. My mom gave up probably around when I was ten or eleven. Um, R-rated movies. She was trying to hold fast until I was sixteen or so, but I think like around fifteen. Oh. Honestly, when I could drive. That is late. Like, that is. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, she was pretty strict about it. It was sort of like. And it was a case-by-case basis. Like, if I really wanted to watch something, my parents would watch it first. I, they, like, I really wanted to watch the Addams Family movie. And when that came out in, like, maybe 90, 91, so I was not even 10 years old yet. Um, and they watched it, and they are like, this is so stupid. And if this is what he wants to watch, he can, like, go to town. Um, but I remember, like, in sixth grade, I was invited to someone's birthday, and... Somehow, my mom found out that we were planning to watch The Exorcist, and she called the friend's mom and was like, I don't think this is appropriate for sixth graders. Like, do you remember what happens in The Exorcist? So, like, that, A, pissed me off, but also that was sort of thing. Like, she, when it came to, like, sex or, like, really graphic thing, I think the sex, the masturbation scene in The Exorcist is, like, what upset her the most. Sure. Um, It was probably Mm -hmm. not the violence, really. Um so they would watch a lot of pg-13 movies especially when i was in like elementary school to like see if it was okay um i do remember the first r-rated movie i saw was the bodyguard because i was always obsessed with whitney houston okay um and i was like i have to see this movie and so they were like okay so they watched it and you didn't get obsessed with kevin costner's haircut and then... No, I didn't. No, um, and they were like, "This is fine." I mean, they were. My, my mom later said she's like, "Well, if you didn't know what fuck meant, you were gonna figure it out because they pretty much like she says it like I want you to fuck me or something." Um, so it was a gradual thing, but honestly, when I was when I was able to drive <clears throat> and I could go to the video store and rent things myself, like it was sort of all bets were off. They couldn't really control it anymore. So. Do you remember, uh, um, um, what was the first film writing you would have read? Um, well, I was obsessed with the, um, 
I used to buy like movie guides, like those paperbacks that like either Leonard Maltin or Roger Ebert. I don't know if they wrote them. They probably just had their names on them. I mean, I don't even know if they were even pulled from there. Were someone ghostwritten? Um, Well, I'm talking about like the video guides. So like literally like thousand page, like just reference books of like, you know, short capsule reviews and like who was in each movie and like that sort of thing. Okay. So I was really obsessed with those. Um, that was not really criticism really. It was just like, this is what the movie is about. A little consumer um, guide stuff. Like, yeah. And like, and like our godparents had a computer before we did with the internet. Like I remember they had a CD ROM that came with their gateway. That was like the Leonard Balton movie guide that had, clips uh, clips of like scenes and clips of dialogue um so i i exposed myself to a lot of movies that i wasn't allowed to watch that way because i could watch like the famous clips from like i remember seeing the rosemary's baby one where it was like the final scene where she goes and and sees the baby uh kind of spoils it for you (laughs) but um but that was sort of how i like got access to everything which is like reading sort of like research-based um things around movies and then i i think when we went to disney world on our like first family vacation like that um like the first time we were like took a flight and we're gone for a long time um i bought an entertainment weekly and it was like the fall movie preview issue and i remember it had the cast of pulp fiction on the cover oh okay. so that was a big deal because it was like I was reading this like adult movie magazine and it, it was sort of like laid out in the same way that I was used to reading about movies, which is like, here are like 50 movies, what they're about, who's in them, like an image from each one. I find like why to be excited about it. I find it so fascinating because Entertainment Weekly was that for me, although it was a few years later. I remember going into early college and like <laughs> – I mean, does that stuff age well? Like, uh, Owen Gleiberman still has a job, but, um, and still writing pretty consistently, but, um, yeah. Um, I think, I mean, that era was, I mean, it was a great magazine. That era, like, also, Premiere, Premiere was more of like, I feel like more of like the indie, like, I don't know. I, I, EW was always very populist and like generalist because it also covered other, you know, it covered music and books and stuff like that too mm-hmm. um, and television and then us at the time was a movie magazine which i read a couple of issues of premiere was like like the real movie one um that had like good criticism and stuff i don't remember a lot that i read uh, yeah sure i do because it was just sort of like you know it was a weekly magazine with ew so there was so much um I do remember when Titanic came out. Actually, so I remember two big reviews. One was like, I would say like maybe six months after Titanic came out, Ty Burr wrote like basically this takedown of it and was like, this movie sucks. And it was it was truly like the first, I think probably like, I, who knows? There's probably other articles like saying it was not a great movie. But that was the first one that I read that was like, this movie is bad, and this movie that everyone is obsessed with is bad. And so I remember being sort of shocked by it, but also thinking, well, he's not actually incorrect, like what he's saying. Yeah. Um, and then Lisa Schwartzman. That was the Schwartzman, other one I couldn't remember. Yeah. yeah she wrote. A, 
Yeah, she wrote like an F rating review of Fight Club, which I feel like she still talks about because she got so much shit for that. I think Ebert pretty, um, was pretty hard on it too when it came out too. Yeah, he was probably. I mean, he's always, but he was always like the more established film critic. Like he would be, he would be a little bit more. Um, I don't know, contrarian too. Like he gave a terrible review of Blue Velvet. Oh, I forgot um, about that one. When it first came out. Yeah. So he backed off the um, Fight Club one, but I remember for years, like, uh, he still went back off the, uh, he panned Blade Runner and he's like, I'm sticking by that one. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, those were two, two pieces that I distinctly remember being like pretty big deals. Um, at least to me. Um, but yeah, that, that was sort of like, that was sort of my entry point into all that stuff and like i mean this is all before the internet at least we had the internet um so i was still getting my information from magazines and um and then just like going to the video store just like roaming around the video store and like i just became like i don't know i look back on it now and i'm like i was sort of like an expert on all these movies i'd never seen like i could tell you who was in them, who directed them. I, you know, I that probably didn't strike so writers familiar much. to me. Like I just, cause you would like, especially in a small town, if you didn't have access to some of this stuff, you'd right. read about it. You'd imagine it. I, like the library. I remember like being an expert on Kubrick, uh, before having seen even half of his movies. Right. Well, yeah. When eyes wide shut came out, I don't think I'd ever seen a Stanley Kubrick movie. Um, that was like 97, 99. 90, was that 99? Yeah. So I would have been 16. I wasn't allowed to watch it, obviously. Um, and, but I think I had, I maybe had seen The Shining. I think I rented Lolita, which I didn't understand at the time. Like, there was still, but, and that was when they were, like, re-releasing them all on VHS and those, like, white covers. Yeah. Um, I remember that. So, like, I just remembered, like, that being, like, sort of an event of just, like, thinking everyone talking about Stanley Kubrick. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I also went to the library a lot. I spent a lot of time there just like reading about things, like trying to just get like sort of a baseline knowledge of stuff um, without ever. And it wasn't until college really that I had like full access to like, you know, the library had a million criterion DVDs and then I started taking film classes. And so I got more of like, you know, the survey of important historical films, uh, both American and foreign. Would, and that's sort of, I, st I started seeing a lot of foreign films in college from like taking classes. It was, it was an English major you had mostly in college? Yeah. Where'd you Which, go? Uh, the, uh, James Madison University in Virginia. Um, so yeah, they had a film studies minor, which was split between the English department and like, uh, the media arts and design uh, college, basically. Um, and so the film classes in the English department were very much like literature courses where you'd watch, I think I, I, think I took two or three. Um, there's like the, the, um, the main one that you had to take to like finish the minor was, um, or to qualify for the minor was like film, like film history from like, I think turn of the century to like the sixties. And that was just the introduction. So you watched a lot of the silent stuff up until like, I don't know. I don't know if we did easy writer in that, but like around that era. And then there was like a follow-up survey course that went into the modern era. 
And then you take like a film director's course where it was always the same two professors who were like ancient at the time. Um, and they would, they would sort of, they had their like canon that they worked with, but then like for the special, like for directors or film genres, they would usually switch it up. So directors we did, um, we did Hitchcock, um, Louis Buñuel, uh, oh God, Coen Brothers, I think. And then, uh Robert Altman and then okay. so you'd watch like a movie every week and you'd have to present on it uh, one of those movies and then for that you had to like write a like they offered like three other uh directors that you could choose from to like write a paper like arguing auteur theory for that specific director um and I picked like I think I picked Clint Eastwood which this is like before Mystic River came out the following year. So like the stuff he, that I had to work with. Was he was not... on a bad streak at that point. This would have been like blood work. Yeah. Or I mean, they, they assigned like four movies and you had to pick at least three. So they were like Unforgiven, um, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, Play Misty for Me, and uh, Bridges of Madison County. Which like. Don't you have a soft four... spot for Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil? I like it. I mean, I love Unforgiven's great, obviously. Yeah. I think Bridges of Madison County is his most underrated. Definitely. It's definitely. like the most not like a Clint Eastwood movie, but it's very much a Clint Eastwood movie. But like the, those two movies, I can sort of see like a connection because it's about aging and and regret, whereas like the other two movies don't really line up with that at all. So that was sort of a tough assignment, I remember. And then we did like a film genres class, which we did westerns, musicals, and film noir and i felt like that introduced me to i had already seen a lot of musicals but they the ones that they picked were all original movie musicals um like from the 40s and 50s which i didn't really know they weren't like a lot of broadway adaptations and then we finished that with cabaret that shows like how a director can like completely subvert the genre what were you thinking and that of was the sort 40s of... musicals um i remember i liked top hat um, I was never really interested in Fred Astaire, but like I enjoyed that. We watched Singing in the Rain, which I'd never seen before, and that's like so good and so classic. I feel like we did like The Merry Widow, which is very boring. I don't think I've seen The Merry um, Widow. Yeah, it's like, and then the West. I loved the westerns. That was the one I was the most surprised by because we we watched Shane, uh, Stagecoach, um, The Searchers, and The Wild Bunch. Um, and film noir, I'd, I was already obsessed with L.A. Confidential, so I'd seen that a million times already. But I hadn't seen a lot of the the original movies that like basically inspired that. So we watched Double Indemnity, we did um, Touch of Evil, Sunset Boulevard, and Chinatown. So we always ended like each of the unit in the in that course with the sort of anti genre picture of the genre movies so that like subverted all of the rules and stuff was your um, um were, in your brain when you're watching this how much of this um how much were you differentiating differentiating between enjoyment and analysis um i think for some movies especially in like the a lot of the foreign films that we like started with like i remember watching eight and a half and being obsessed with it and like loving it, but I also it was in college a lot too. Yeah. Weird, part of the yeah. reason why I loved it was that there was so much to like pick apart and figure out the same thing happened with Mulholland drive, which the first time I saw it, I hated it because it was because of 
what is actually good about it. And then like the more I thought about it and I, I rewatched it again, I was like, oh, part of my enjoyment of this is p- picking it apart and putting the puzzle back together. Um, and so I feel like the appreciation over the entertainment value, I definitely experienced in a lot of those movies like Potemkin, which like, it's, I mean, it's remembered because of the one major sequence right. that was astounding, but otherwise it's like, you know, very much of its time and is serving like a very specific, almost propaganda purpose. Um, I would say this, God, what are some of the other movies? Like I was never a big fan of Easy Rider, but I can see like why it's important and valuable. And I, th- I feel like that, when you when you revisit movies or if you watch movies from a different time in a new context, like it's almost impossible not to feel that way about certain things. Um, especially, I, I was really obsessed with Bunuel in college because we had watched a lot of his movies. And then, you know, he's not really anyone that a lot of like populist or popular directors even talk about. He's come up um, a lot lately, I feel like, but you know, I have a bad blind spot to him. Uh, like I've seen maybe two okay i mean we i've seen a lot of them and i i i started rewatching a couple of them when the criterion channel did like a big uh package on him um because a lot of his movies just haven't been available and even as criterion moves along like they're not really like they've kind of released all the big ones from those big directors and now and because they're like getting more access to like American films they're doing more popular, like kind of cheerier films, I think with their releases. Mm. So I feel like he's just like, it's the farther we get away from those, that era. And like, you're just not seeing the influence on current filmmaking as much anymore. And like the rhythms of those old movies are just like so slow and they just don't move with the same pace. Yeah, it's, so it's weird watching like Christopher Nolan movies. It, like that's the only way you get this general feel of like silent films in general, much less like Stroheim or um, I don't know um, uh, who did uh, uh, Sunrise. Who did um, Mon- uh, oh, Monal, I don't know. Okay, yeah, stuff like that. Like just people telling movies with just like not doing traditional Hollywood setups and stuff, and just individual shots and things like that. Um, right. When. Um, w- do you remember a specific point when you started uh, uh, reading not contemporary critics, but started going back reading old critics and seeing what they'd said at the time? Um, no, I mean, I've never, I should, I, I, I've read very little bit of like, you know, criticism of that were was contemporary of the releases. I feel like there have been a few times that I've gone back to read, like, I feel like Pauline Kale is the most, most obvious and also entry level <laughs> like critic yeah. to go to um, because she's the one that is referenced the most still. I've definitely gone back and read, I tried to find like old New Yorker pieces about specific movies um, or like, I mean, her famous one is like sound of music, which like, again, was like an extremely popular film that she came out against and like got so much shit for because yeah, of it. And got fired. Um, Suppos- yeah. Uh, supposedly. Yeah. Right. Um, no, I mean, I, I think I, when I watch movies now, 
I definitely, because I'm holding my phone constantly and I always have like a second screen in front of me. I'm always looking up the movie somewhere. Um, I love Letterboxd for the reason that I loved like all of those movie guides is because it's, it's basically just all of them hyperlinked together. Right. You so I can go back. Letterboxd, yeah. yeah, yeah. I so it. I can see what other people say. I can see like, you know, it like just sends me down these rabbit holes. Um, I go to Wikipedia a lot. I play Hollywood math, which is my game where I go to see how old people were when they made these movies, which is often um, a real mind fuck for me, <laughs> especially when I'm like, Rewatching movies that came out when I was a teenager, and I'm now like, oh, like the entire cast of Talented Mr. Ripley were children, but they seemed so old at the time. Yeah. Um, that's sort of how I, that's sort of what I go back and look at. And I try to find a little bit of context for, you know, because I'm just, I'm very interested in that, is like how, how the movies get made. Um, I've become more interested in that since being in Los Angeles in the last two years and knowing people who work in the industry and like just how hard it is to get anything made. Um, and yeah, that's sort of like what I, that's like the, the journey I go on every time I watch a movie, maybe it's just like reading about things about it, but not necessarily like criticism of it. I guess I should clarify up until have you ever had a specific point or just one job where it was mostly film? Cause mostly it's been all media that you are kind of writing about. Yeah, I would say the last thing, I mean, I just finished this job at THR, um, and that was the one thing that was like, yeah, was completely movie-based, because I was just watching all the award season contenders and thinking about them. Um, But yeah, every other job I've had has sort of been split between movies and television with a little bit about like books and, and music as well, just like to fill in those gaps, but um yeah there aren't really i think in like the media that i've worked in there aren't any like dedicated publications that are like that big that are just for like movies or music or tv like everything sort of folds in on itself because i think these publications are trying to reach mass audiences sure so that that actually segues into i mean i do want to get back into uh, your time in new york but um your, the last job you had so you were there for the oscar campaign season yeah you worked it um what i guess what was it like i mean are you just being bombarded with screeners what kind of um uh, yeah so i started after you for deduce i mean yeah i was sort of like not really sure what it was going to be it turned out to be a lot less i mean i thought it was going to be like a lot of publicist pitching stuff it turned out like not i didn't have that many which is sort of nice i sort of i mean i think it was a, not having to be in charge of something was sort of nice um so someone else handled all that stuff and i just like took assignments i pitched some stories as well but um but yeah i mean i think starting in october or so i was going to screenings um just to get ahead of things um knowing that like you know, the bulk of the movies that were going to be in contention were coming out in like November onward. And then I started in November and uh, I mean, a lot of it, you know, it's a lot of it was just like we, they had already sort of identified, like, I think it came down to like 33 front runners for like best picture or like 33 movies that would be in competition for best picture. Um, And, and, you know, or like just big awards movies that would have like 
you know, an an actor's performance anchoring them plus like some technical stuff like judy for example judy was never going to be nominated for best picture um but it would get best actress and and some makeup stuff like that i'm signing um, deeply over judy it's it's a, yeah um, yeah I, but whatever i i mean well i think i yeah i think what was sort what have what i found interesting about my response to movies this season is that i saw so many of them and i talked to so many people involved in the making of them that I became almost like less cynical about the movies themselves because I recognize like how much work goes into all of them and like how much like I talked to the screenwriter of Judy and I also talked to the guy who wrote the play that it was based on and it's sort of like I didn't love Judy it felt like a BBC like TV movie yeah which it sort of was um but I had like more respect for the script after I talked to the screenwriter and even the the guy who wrote the play, because I think a lot of people, the biggest uh, criticism I heard about the movie was that like, oh, they had these flashbacks that were unnecessary, like explaining who Judy Garland was, and it felt like sort of like hokey, and they were both like so many people don't know who judy garland was like Seriously. people don't have like yeah people don't have that context and in fact i watched it with my i watched it at home over christmas again with my mom and my brother and his wife and my my brother's 30 and he didn't know who judy garland was like he knew what the wizard of oz was but he knew nothing about the actress and like what she went through he didn't know he was she was liza minnelli's mother um and so it's just sort of like it 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 reminded me that I am truly in like this entertainment bubble where like I am obsessed with these things, but like the average person does not know or care. Well, there's also that divide um, going back home, like to a small town. The, yeah, the entertainment bubble is strong. Where you're just like, oh, yeah. this is a part of your life, and like. But also at the same time, my brother. We watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and my brother and his wife didn't really know what was going on because they didn't know. Because they never say Charles Manson's name. They never, like, they show him once, but he's, like, not identified. The girl, the Manson girls refer to Charlie, but they're never, like, like, you kind of have to go into that movie knowing exactly what happened. And that is true. That did happen 50 years ago, and, like, the average millennial right now probably doesn't know much about Sharon Tate and the Sharon Tate murders. Um, so there is, like, still, like, a learning curve that I think you have to go into that. Which, like, for me, as someone who watches everything and loves movies, my natural response would be go immediately to Wikipedia and read the true story behind it. I but do the same thing. I totally do the yeah, same thing. Yeah, that's, that's just not how they approach things. They were just sort of like, by the time it was over, my sister-in-law was like, so I thought that Sharon Tate died? <laughs> and we're like, yeah, she did. But, like, the movie is, like, this fairy tale version of it. And so I think it was just, like, enough to just be, like, she was just, like, I don't really understand. And then another friend of mine was saying that they had a friend who was visiting L.A. from, like, the Netherlands and was, like, had heard this movie is so good and went to see it and had no idea who anyone, like, hadn't even heard of Charles Manson. So it was just, like, I didn't understand what was happening for two and a half hours. Like, it was all, like, bananas to hmm. me. I know. Um Back to your... Early... That, I think, is very funny to me. Like, 
I think I think a lot of us take for granted that like the audience knows these things and like it really is the job. Like when you're making a movie like that, you kind of have to put in like the entry level like knowledge that I think for people like us are going to be like annoyed by it. Yeah. Well, I mean, stuff we already know. This contextualization has to inform a lot of the stuff you're writing too. You're just like you're clear the scene. Like I don't think people maybe exactly get what's what would make the context that would help them enjoy this movie. Right, right. So that was sort of talking to the Judy people. That was really interesting to me. Like how much they had to, how much they felt they needed to explain about her, so that the audience would understand what the character herself was going through. Right. So that made me appreciate it a little bit more. I mean, again, I still watched it, and I'm like, it is just like, I think it's a it's a three star movie with a really good performance in it. But um, well, it's interesting you have that perspective on it because I mean, I I jumped into this making you know pithy comment about the movie, and but I do distinctly remember this moment on the first big movie I worked on that had gotten reviewed. We worked on it for like two years, and when it came out at a festival. I remember reading stuff that morning from critics I liked and respected. And they came up with, some of them came up with spot on takes. Some of them came up with, you know, interesting things. Most, a lot of it, when you're in an editing room a long time, almost everything that's going to be said about a movie, someone has said in that editing room at some point. Like we've gone through it all. But I just remember thinking, oh, I worked two uh, two years on this. They came up with their opinion in two hours. Yeah. it, It was weird for having been kind of, sanctifying a lot of film criticism forever just to be on that was my first real like distinct time on the other side of it yeah i mean that's what i was thinking when the irishman premiered at the new york film festival there were like there were reviews that were up in a shorter amount of time than would have taken to watch the irishman and I was just like, this movie, and like, it, you know, that the movie wasn't even like available to see until end of November. And this was like early October and everyone was like, fi- like racing to file their reviews. And I was like, no one can even see this movie yet. And like, you're busting your ass to like take three and a half hours worth of a film and like quickly like form a take around it. And like how like, that is sort of like where I see like digital media is like ruining thought (laughs) and like forcing us to have our, our like, you know, our definitive opinion or take like within five minutes. Um, I find so fascinating the origins of a lot of criticism still from like the uh, daily newspaper where there's an overlap of journalism where you're trying to get ahead of something so fast where, and I mean, and it's also that consumerist uh, part of reviewing versus, you know, criticism. Right. It's, I mean, there's still all these holdovers, but they make sense whenever you're just trying to, like, get something up on Twitter and get the opinion of it across. Right. I mean, it's just so funny to me because I've watched, I've watched so many of the, like, Oscar season movies multiple times at this point because a lot of it's because I would go see a screening of it by myself and then I'd get home and, like, I, we would get a screener and so my boyfriend wouldn't watch them and so i watched them um or then we go home for christmas and my mom wants to watch them so we throw it on so i saw like i saw judy twice i saw joker twice i saw little women twice i mean none of these movies were movies that i like really loved but i you, you had know, a strong I opinion appreci- about little women i remember i yeah i love 
the 94 version. I liked the story itself. I, I ultimately, I decided I appreciate what this movie does, but I didn't really, I wasn't really entertained by it. Um, with the exception of Florence Pugh, who I thought was amazing. Um, but, and like, I came around on Joker a little bit too, because Seriously. I, I saw that out of like obligation and I, you know, left thinking, well, this is not as bad as I thought it was going to be, but I still like, there's still a lot of it that just like, I don't know, was so boring to me. And like, I don't find Todd Phillips to be like a thinker by any means. Yeah. Um, a, and so he's presenting a lot of it. like, yeah, he's like, here's some ideas, man. And it's, but like none of them line up to anything, but I watched it a second time at home and I was like, honestly, like if you just avoid all of like the preconceived notions about it at the end of the day, like it's got a pretty compelling lead performance. Um, and it looks really good. A friend of mine described it as looking like a W fashion editorial, like inspired by the seventies, which that's all it was. It was all homage. And then, um, I love, I still think that the, the talk show sequence is phenomenal. It's so insane. It's so tense. And that was when the movie, like even the first time I saw it, I was like, this is actually entertaining to me. And the reason is because I just want to see the Joker be the Joker. I don't, I don't care about I've, the origins of the sad person. Yeah. I've had this argument or not argument. And no one's actually argued with me. This theory that the Joker is now turning into uh, Hamlet as this role that actors inherently want to do oh. just because you're like the id you're like, um, you're like Alex from clockwork orange or um, I'm, right. I'm trying to bring in the Shakespeare analog, but it's like, um, you know, actors just want to chew on it, you know? And um, yeah, which makes sense, but I'm sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that, like, when everyone's like, I can't believe it's, it, you know, got so many awards. And I'm like, why? It made a billion dollars, literally a billion dollars. And it, like, it's a comic book movie with, like, some artistic ambitions. And, you know, is truly a copy of Martin Scorsese films, but it doesn't, like it feels different than black Panther, which like as a Marvel movie is directed by a committee of people and yeah. written by a committee of people. Um, and so like, yeah. And like, again, like actors love it because they see this as like the actor's movie of the year because Joaquin Phoenix just like went and did whatever he wanted to do and it, had complete like rain. It is an undeniably up. pretty great performance i know like even when I, my first one when i was just crapping on the movie i was like well you got to see it once just for the just for the performance at the very least right i think i mean to me the more i read about it and like he didn't have a stuntman and he did all these like dangerous like he truly i mean there are rules and regulations for actors for a reason and i think that what he was allowed to do was sort of like borderline dangerous for other people on set um having said that like that's why he took this chance like because he was going to be able to do that whatever he wanted and like he can i think that i do think that he's a little full of himself <laughs> and like yeah. and i think when you have if you compare it to like you're never really here i think is a much more interesting film because it's not dictated by <laughs> the actor's performance it's like actually made by a director knows what she's doing um 
I mean, but I, 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 I think I, I would say you need to see it in context of like he's now that actor like um, Daniel Day-Lewis before he retired or Brando in the yeah. early '70s where you, you just gotta see everything. Like it's it's worth, right. it's worth the price of admission. Just at right. his name above the title. Um, right. So backtracking and again slightly. Um, so you. So you went to you went to Chicago. You how long were you in Chicago? Five years. And then um, you kind of made the leap at the end of Chicago, like quit uh, the grad school thing, and you went to Brooklyn and made made a run out of it. Uh, what was your first job in in New York? Uh, my first job was at a startup. Um, I was the office manager, um, so not related to anything that I'm doing. I mean, I knew someone who's an engineer there, and so sort of got me in to an interview. Um, and that was very boring and stupid. And I was there for like, I basically was laid off when they sold the company. Um, but while I was there, it like allowed me to like be in New York and start freelancing and, and sort of interact with other editors who knew I was there and available to write stuff. Okay. Uh, so after I, after that job ended, um, I was like the nighttime blogger for Black Book. Okay. Um, and I did that for a month. And someone was leaving, like, one of the assistants or the editors was leaving. So, like, the the next person was bumping up. And so I basically was offered that, like, lower-level job. Um, and so I did that for, like, a year and a half. Um, and that sort of, like, fast-forwarded my career because I started as assistant editor. But within, a, like, within less than a year, I was a senior editor because people just kept leaving. And I was just like given more and more responsibility and duties and like just handed work. Um, so that was sort of weird and that like not, that never happens. And so I really lucked out there. Um, and then like after like a few years, I just sort of like hopped around from place to place for a bit. Um, yeah. And I think I, I was at Flavorwire and then Decider and then Esquire, and then okay. wrote for a, a handful of other places just you, as a freelancer. Do you remember your first press screening? Uh, yes, I think so. I think it was The Iron Lady, do you, which uh, sucks. What was, <laughs> what was the theater? Um, I think it was just like a, uh, it was just like a, like, so all the, the press screenings in New York are mostly like in these huge skyscrapers that either have like that like have Dolby rooms, like mostly on the lobby floor, but they're very nondescript. Like it's just like going into an office building. Um, in LA, it's a little bit more interesting because they're either at like the ArcLight or um, or like on a studio lot. So you go to like Fox or, or Warner Brothers and like get, yeah, get lost on the way and like feel like you're part of it. But it also like reduces it to like, you know, it's just like, oh, this is just like a place where people work. Like they're just all these normal people walking around. Like you're not going to run into like famous people here because mm -hmm. they're not roaming the lot. Um, but it is so like exciting because like you have to like, the security is very intense and like you do get lost in the lot because it's just like a million buildings that all look exactly the same. Yeah. And then there's um, this in Western backdrop somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, like I never, when I, I've been to Warner once, but I never like, I was never in a part very close to like the actual 
like studio lot, like the New York lot or the small town. Um, okay. Uh, when did, uh, when did you first get on Twitter? Oh my God. Uh, I would say like 2008. So this maybe? is before this is just, it, w- it was just a hobby when you first got on. Yeah, it was, I got on because people I like followed on Tumblr were on it, but I probably wasn't using it. I feel like I didn't use it for a bit when I first joined and it took maybe a couple of years before I saw any sort of like interesting things about it. Yeah. Um, back when it was fun and not a nightmare every day. Toxic sludge zone. <laughs> um, so what were the first things you found you liked about it? Um, It was just a place to, I mean, I feel like it was, a place to just like put stray thoughts um and communicate with other people and like just little jokes um i remember i remember using it before i had an iphone and i would like actually text a number and have it show up on twitter <laughs> wow i, I guess I, yeah i mean i never really dived into twitter but i definitely don't remember that that period like there's there's this element i mean especially going through just other people's tweets it feels like um stand-up comedy for introverts sometimes where yes 100 percent. and then there's also the uh writer's technique of you just like you want to chisel a sentence you want to get it or like i mean is are those parts of the appeal to you i mean i actively hate it i'm <laughs> constantly trying to wean myself off of it uh, uh it's very difficult um as someone who likes attention every now and then um i think the positive things i've gotten out of it i've definitely gotten story ideas from it either noticing trends or things that people are talking about or having someone like a writer i like say you know present a theory or a comment or a critique of something and i've i've reached out to many people and be like can you expand this into an essay um so i found like writers that way um but mostly i think it it is really a time suck that i often wonder how much i'm actually getting out of it despite like the uh, the few moments that i can like prove that i got something out of it most of it's just like a place to go and get angry <laughs> so which is i guess the internet altogether right now yeah yeah um, i mean it's just a comment section which is like the worst part of the internet yeah i mean so. um what are um story pit or um story pitch sessions like I mean, are they, um, do they have any correlation between like movie pitch ideas? Like, is it the one where you have to throw out a bunch? I mean, I assume it's like, because it's a daily based thing versus a you know something you make every two or three years. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, in my experience, I've definitely had like freelancers send like here are five or six ideas that are some like the, you know they can be more evergreen things. Um, that doesn't happen as often. Um, I would say. I mean, it's sort of kind of depends on the publication i think and just like the dynamics there and like the personalities i've been in places where you know we have like a weekly meeting or a daily meeting and like just topics are are discussed and then we figure out who's the best to like if someone has an idea about it or like who is the best person to write about that topic um there have been 
moments when I just assigned them to people on staff when I had people working with me or I reached out to freelancers who I knew would be good fits for that sort of thing. I think a lot of it has to do with like cultivating a group of people that you work with regularly enough that you know who you can like reach out to. Um, I feel like from having friends who work mostly in television and TV development, like it's a very different game where, you know, the pitches are more fully formed. I would, I mean, I never was really a features editor, but I imagine that features like, you know, reported pieces are going to be much more fully formed at the, at that pitch stage because there could have been some reporting already being done by the person writing it or, or that sort of thing, or there's a connection that they have to the story that they can sort of like explain why the story is good and worth pursuing. But worth paying you've written for. your share of features though, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've mostly done like some celebrity profiles, which those those are either like some I've I've like sought out myself, like reached out to a publicist and be like, hey, I want to profile this person. Um, a lot of people, a lot of magazines have like talent bookers that they work primarily with um, publicists to who who pitch them, and then they find, you know, they pick where it can go. Um, I know that's specifically then, something I wanted to ask you about. What is yeah. the format of a celebrity profile? Is it just like 10 minutes in a hotel lobby? Um, I think in the old days, you'd get like, I mean, it still happens sometimes for like big places. Like you, you spend a lot of time with someone. Um, like some of the best New Yorker profiles, like I think are the results of like months and months worth of shadowing of a celebrity visiting them on set while they're working, like talking to people who work with them, people in their personal lives. Um, that's sort of like the big, like huge feature side of it. But that sounds like I, a big budget yeah. thing where like the, you have to yeah. have, give a reporter months of time as opposed to, right. like, you know, giving someone like a half or a little bit of time before the marketing of a movie is about to come out or something like that. Exactly. I would say mo the most time I've spent with anyone has maybe been an hour and a half um, or maybe like three or four hours when that includes the, the photo shoot. And so I've just sort of like watched it happen. And so I can sort of gather some like, some color there of just like how they interact with people but for the most part it's very brief like you get like 45 minutes to an hour with people because like they're all doing press tours so they're doing like a million of these interviews with everyone what's the goal in the celebrity profile thing are you just trying to get an angle are you trying to figure them out um for me as someone who i think is more of a critic than a reporter it's probably I like what I like about them is that I get to play, I get to interview them, get their perspective on something, but I also get to interject my own sort of critical perspective about, you know, who they are, why they do what they do and why they're good at it. Um, and I feel like the one that I keep coming back to is the Kyle McLaughlin one that I did um, for Twin Peaks, which I interviewed him I think a few days before the finale. So I hadn't seen it. And so I really like, I couldn't really like delve into, and also like in the middle of that show, like I couldn't have delved into it cause it was so insane. Yeah. Um, but I did like, you know, I sort of talked about him as like, you know, returning to this role, this character returning to working with the, you know, the director who basically made him 
Kyle MacLachlan. Um, and also like, you know, the through line of him playing kind of like, not the same character, but he played very similar characters, like in Blue Velvet and the first Twin Peaks, he's very much like this idealistic, like handsome, like boy next door type. Um, but also like, and he even described it this way. He was like, I have like, I have like features that like are just a little unsettling to people. So I'm never going to be like the movie star who makes like Marvel movies. Like I had my shot at Dune and that was a failure. And like, I'm never going to be the leading man like that but that does qualify me for kind of you know people who are on the margins of like being good guys versus bad guys so he kind of played like these smarmy guys in a lot of like soapy shows like desperate housewives or sex in the city but um you know i think with like dale cooper he was like this wholesome boy scout kind of person that david lynch could project a lot of stuff onto yeah the um, audience surrogate or the director surrogate at that point not the right surrogate, but yeah but i i would say i really like i like writing i like talking to writers either songwriters or or filmmakers or actors who write because i feel like that i don't know much about acting like it's all and i don't think most people do i think it's all like uh it's all analysis that we're like kind of coming up with on the fly. But I feel like when I've interviewed people who are writers as well, like you can see what they're like, what personal parts of themselves are bringing into things or what they're trying to avoid bringing into things personally. Um, do you have, I mean, you're working freelance right now. Do you have mm -hmm. a preference between um, a, like a steady editor job versus freelance? Cause it seems like there's definitely a grass is greener aspect. I mean, and I ask you, cause this is something I am constantly dealing with too. Right. Especially because I also frequently, as much as I want to say the grass is greener and all this other stuff, I also a lot of times don't have a choice in this. It's just whatever jobs are hiring me at the time. Yeah. I mean, I would certainly prefer a job <laughs> and a steady paycheck. Absolutely. I mean, I, I am not, I, I don't think of myself as a very good freelancer because I like being around people. So working alone is very difficult and like getting like the self-starting is sort of hard. I don't feel disciplined there. I feel like when I have stakes, like people around me who I could possibly disappoint is when I like, that's how I become a good worker and become consistent. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I will say I, what I liked about being at PHR for three months is that it was still part-time. So I had like, I was going in four days a week at most um and i wasn't in charge i i didn't feel like i had the investment enough to like speak up about other stuff like i was just going in there doing a job you know giving my expertise pitching my stories like whatever and then when it was done it was done um so that was sort of nice like not being in charge of something and not having like such high stakes around something like that okay. um but I do miss working for sure. <laughs> what kind of stuff were you writing in THR? I saw that um, profile you did on the, um, is it uh, Shannon McIntosh is the producer for uh, Once Upon a Time? Yeah, I interviewed her. So mostly I was, I was editing most stuff. I mean, it was a lot of, I kind of described it as like creative copy or creative data entry because <laughs> for, for, for print, like you truly have these boxes that you have to fit the copy into. So um and then like I was coming up, so a lot of, I was getting a lot of copy that I was like line editing 
and fitting into the page and then into the layout. And then I would write the decks and headlines um, describing what the stories were about. So, and then, um, yeah, I interviewed the producer for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because they had, basically they were, they would run a two page spread for every single movie with a Q and A with a producer. Um, so, that was sort of like a given like we we had reached out to publicists and we're like you know who you will have available like you know what like movies are likely to be nominated if you can get that to us as soon as possible so that kind of was seamless the stories i pitched there i pitched the story about judy um where i talked to the playwright and the screenwriter because the play was originally like a London fringe show. Um, and it was not about Judy Garland. It was a, a fictional um, uh, performer of a, a female performer, like past your prime who was like singing standards. And so it was like a backstage sort of musical in the same way, but she would sing and perform. Um, and it was a, a what was success. The so it was, yes, it was successful, but like the guy who wrote it said that like people kept referring to the character as Judy Garland. And he was like, Oh, this is clearly inspired by her, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, It really wasn't. Like, I wasn't thinking about that at all. But then when he was like realizing that people were responding to it because of that, he then started reading more about Judy Garland's like kind of her late in life stuff, like the stuff that happened in London at, uh, in 68. And he was sort of shocked that there had never been a show about her. There had been like one TV movie, but there had never been any sort of like definitive um, biographical uh, take on her. Um, so he wrote, so he basically changed the story and like made it about Judy Garland in uh, London. And it was like a huge success, like internationally. It played on the West End, it played on Broadway. It's like, and like he's, and he, he told me, he's like, it's played in like Argentina and like, you do have to explain who she is um, because they don't necessarily know the full story about her. But he was like, but what it does show is that like, it is a universal like struggle that she went through that people can relate to. And like, um, so that was sort of like, that was, I was sort of interested like how it became, it went from like this tiny little like show in a bar into this movie um, and then I, for also the same package, it was a screenplay package. I talked to four um, journalists who wrote magazine articles that were turned into movies. Um, so so was one was Jessica Pressler, who wrote the story that became Hustlers for New York Magazine. Marie Brenner, who is like a veteran journalist. She's she wrote like she, she, this is her third movie that she had tr based on one of her articles, but it was the Richard Jewell story. That she wrote in 97. Of like the Ballad um, of Richard Jewell, which is a significantly yeah. better title. Yeah, that was the original That was the original title for the movie, but they scrapped it. Um, and then Dark Waters was based on a story by Nathaniel Rich for the New York Times Magazine that was like a profile of Mark Ballot, who uh, Mark Ruffalo plays, or Robert Ballot, I think, maybe. Um and Mark Ruffalo plays him in the movie. And then Tom Juneau's profile of Mr. Rogers for Esquire was the basis for Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Which obviously I got worked into the movie. Um, who, yeah. Who, who are your favorite working writers right now? Like journalists? In general. I mean, fiction, journalism. Um, um... 
God, that's a good question. I don't, I feel like I, there's no contemporary like novelist that I follow really. Um, I would say on the journalism side, like when it comes to profiles, I really like uh, Gabby Paella at GQ. She was at the cut for a bit um, and now she's writing at GQ and she's really good. She's very funny um and weird um and writes a good profile um alex young at uh e alex young at uh vulture is a really good interviewer um david marchese has sort of like reinvented the celebrity interview he was he was interviewing a lot of people for new york magazine he did i think he did dave letterman but he did uh kathy Kathleen Turner. He kind of like picks people. That's a great one. Yeah. He picks people who are like, not necessarily like in the moment right now, but I think that that, because they will have a lot to say, they have a long history and like, because there are low stakes for them to talk about things with the press, they will open up about a lot of bit more. Um, He also did a really good one. I think his first one for the times, because he just went over there, like within the last year, he interviewed Meg Ryan. Um, I haven't read that one. And that was a really good one because she looks back on like her career and like it's sort of ending because of In the Cut and also because of the affair with Russell Crowe when she left uh, Dennis Quaid. And like she was very like aware that that affected her career because she was seen as this like wholesome, like romantic comedy lead girl next door type of person. And then she had these like two one a project that was really like super sexual and not like on brand for her. And then also the, the Russell Crowe thing, like really tarnished her. Um, so it's just sort of interesting, like how she like, she's like, yeah, this, I mean, it's fucked up and it happened. Um, um, what kind of stuff would you be writing if um, money wasn't an issue, if you had everything covered? Um, I, I think I would, be more assertive about doing celebrity profiles because they don't um they don't i mean nothing really makes a lot of money i feel like if i had if i had everything covered i would probably be a little bit more ambitious as a reporter maybe of going out and finding stories without worrying about like how i pay for the time up front while i'm waiting like to either get like the green light to write a piece and get paid for it. Or, you know, once the piece is written, like waiting for the money to come in. Cause that mm-hmm. can usually take a long time and it's usually not a lot of money. Um, do you, um, do you have like a, uh, having to do all this stuff with the Oscars? Do you have a newfound respect for the Oscars? Cause I mean, I know our conversations, like I'm still in the, place where i'm every year i'm increasingly shitting on it and i remember the other day you gave a little bit of a defense of it i think they were always my favorite thing they were like my super bowl as a kid like i was always obsessed with them same here it's just it's yeah i I feel that the diminishing returns every year though and i don't know that's getting older or something about disliking their taste or something i don't know what it is with me right yeah i i definitely became i mean i think working them like took the fun out of them like once it was like a weekend of work um i no longer enjoyed them and i think that like i think because of social media like awards shows like that like bring out the worst in everyone because we get so personally attached to our favorite things and the competition just yeah and the competition and then it just becomes like 
I think about like the La La Land Moonlight divide that happening <coughs> sort of right after the election and all of these like personal narratives that get getting caught up in like it and like it just became this like weird thing where like people were associating La La Land with racism and Trump, which is has nothing to do with it. And and it's just like these sort of real world narratives get pushed onto popular culture like that and like a really destructive and stupid way. Hmm. Um, I think what I've gained more interest in having done like award season as a thing is that it's like its own economy. There's so much money around it. Like magazines, like trade magazines, like THR and variety get so much money, like get so much ad revenue from FYC campaigns. Uh, The studios are spending so much money running billboards and ads and, you know, funding feature like behind the scenes featurettes about them, like commercials and all this stuff. But also like, all of the parties, all of the screenings, like there's just like, there's just so much influence and it's just so intense to me, like how much money people are willing to spend. And then also like everyone has to participate because it's like part of the process now. Yeah. Um, it's the only so way it doesn't, of, like, uh, an interesting adult movie is made <laughs> to anymore. Yeah. I mean, like I don't get, I mean, I was less upset about like snubs this year than ever because I was like, well, I know why. Um, I know, I mean, I think some of them are egregious, but I know why they happen. Like JLo didn't get nominated because Hustlers was an indie movie and the company did not spend a dime on FYC campaigns because they knew it wasn't going to be nominated for best picture or best director. Like its best chances were JLo for supporting and maybe uh adapted screenplay and that's just not they didn't have enough money to like throw money behind was, that was that what happened with a24 and uncut gems for sandler for sure like a24 put all of their money behind the farewell and which i thought had a really good shot at a lot of those big uh like the top categories but they're still an indie like they don't have enough money to like put it behind like uncut gems like beyond sandler maybe like editing maybe writing but like that was not gonna get nominated for best picture like it was a tough year because um the studios that makes sense to me i just think if you if you can't (laughs) nominate adam sandler then the award the award process is the awards process is just broken like it it, the right it just i mean it this year was this year was funny to me because like with the exception of parasite none of the best picture nominations went to indies. Like they were all studios. So all the studios and Netflix, but Netflix is an outlier because they have billions of dollars uh, to spend. So you had all these studios like throwing money behind people and they actually were for the most part, like pretty good movies. Like as far as studio films go, like if you compare this to like what was coming out from studios like 10 years ago, that we're like in Oscar contention, like it's kind of surprise. Yeah. It's shocking to me how good things are. There has been a universal um, contention, or uh, or everyone seems to agree. Like twenty nineteen was a pretty damn good year. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like there was. I mean, I don't know. Even the studio movies, like Little Women, Sony, Once Upon a Time is Sony, uh, 1917's Universal, um, 
I mean, Jojo Rabbit st- was still Fox Searchlight, but still caught up in like Fox and Disney, and they were throwing money behind it. Um, and like that's also like Neon had a really good year, um, and it's their third year in existence. But like they spent a ton of money on uh, Parasite buying it, like which is already a big gamble. They made a ton of money back because it actually it su- exceeded box office expectations by like miles and it's like but then entertaining too <laughs> yeah and it's also great it works across it's a it played uh evansville and it, and i saw it on a saturday night with a pretty full crowd which you know some right. kind of movies and like it played so well there and that, that was my third time seeing it in every single room i've watched it and it plays well yeah um but they also had they had apollo 11 they had amazing grace they had Portrait of a Lady on Fire. They had Wild Rose. Like, all of these movies that were up for, like, kind of smaller individual um, things, but they were not going to be able to spend the money on those things in the same way. Like, Universal had a, a campaign for us. And, like, what would that have reasonably been nominated for? I think Lupita Nyong'o yeah. should have been nominated. I was going to say actress. Uh, yeah, and, like, maybe it, it could have gotten best original screenplay but like it was not going to be nominated for anything else but like wasn't that more discussed at the beginning of the year as opposed to when december came around yeah i mean i think lupita was still like considered someone who had a shot at it um but but yeah it was so long ago it has the genre like going against it i think that like if if neon probably had a shot with portrait of a lady on fire if it had been the submission from France for best international feature, but France submitted Les Miserables instead. So I don't think that like, I think that Portrait of a Lady on Fire could have been nominated for like cinematography or best screenplay um, if people had seen it. But I think because it was not in the running for international feature, it just like got lost. Isn't it supposed to get a wide release in February? Yeah, I think it's February 14th. So I think they also held it. Um, but it won't be able to be, it won't be like um, eligible for anything next year. Yeah. Because it was already in the running for this year. So that's odd. Um, um, I mean, the, the, I keep thinking that like it's what, it's now three years since or four years since Harvey Weinstein's participated in an Oscar campaign. Like it just feels like there's a, um, like it's just, that man's destroyed everything he's touched, including the Oscars. Right. I mean, he's the one who like started the campaigning the way it is now. Like yeah. that's, he made that the standard by just doing it and like starting it. So now, but like, it is truly, it's just wild. Like how much it's like its own little economy. And at the end of the day, like the Oscars are an industry event. The Academy is primarily like older and whiter um all of the branches that like i mean with the exception of like the acting branches like all of the technical branches like are mostly going to be male just because there weren't women and working in sound design and cinematographers and like it's just like they by and by not nominating people like they actively keep them out like they're they have to work at like inviting more people in yeah um to rectify that and i think it's going to be a long process um before it like resets itself if any if it ever will i mean it's all based on money like the most popular films 
that have like that are like somewhat artistic are going to break through to the top no matter what this year i think was generally like a little bit encouraging just slightly even though like this is the first year i know i was very thoroughly pissed that uh, a woman didn't get nominated like there's yeah. just you had because the thing is you have certain years where someone's made a great movie but you can understand why the academy didn't pick it but this year you just had so many movies to choose from right woman and it seems um i mean yeah i think you know it's tough like i think that the actor category was the most competitive it's been in years like joaquin was obviously the shoe and he will win but then you also have leonardo dicaprio you have uh you had adam sandler and eddie murphy in contention at one point um robert de niro wasn't even nominated but like this is like his swan song essentially like the, the the male categories this year were much more stacked than the actress categories and that's why i was sort of that's why I'm shocked at like who got snubbed in the actress side of things because they were always the one like J Lo went to everything. She was campaigning hard for it in the way that she could. <clears throat> she wasn't like buying herself ads. Um, and I think that that's why it's surprising to me that she wasn't nominated for that. I know. Um, I only personally felt, I think I've said this before, but if the Academy is mostly made up of actors or previously had the one thing Oscars are a little bit better getting like, and historically is acting acting awards like they like the best picture awards like you look back and everyone every film fans annoyed at them um technical awards are terrible they like they never understand the te- technical awards right besides the biases you mentioned earlier but there's some acting awards that has vaguely held up at least or at least through actors yeah i feel like the last couple of years we've had strings of like gary oldman for darkest hour or um julianne moore for still alice which like are not movies that anyone will ever talk about ever again but like they were they won because it was like weak years for like yeah i mean they're important actors like i mean that's why glenn close was really truly people thought that she would win last year i think olivia coleman was like a surprise because she like glenn close is going to get her career award for the wife um and it just happened to not shake out that way i think like well yeah hearing you say it you're making a good point that the last few years have not reflected that theory i just presented like it's uh, just it's whatever what the these ideas of what an oscar winning performance is it's just you're you you just said it's just we're not going to remember this stuff in a few years right I mean, I don't know. There are like definitely like stretches of time in Oscar history where it's just like, what? Like, what happened there? Like, the '80s were a weird time um, yeah. for movies that won or were nominated. Um, I mean, the late aughts. I mean, I I feel like the last Oscars that I I remember the year that No Country for Old Men won. I was just gonna say that I remember having this naive utopian idea, like, oh, the Oscars are gonna nail it from now on for some reason. Right, like because, but it was also it was between that and There Will Be Blood, and like that, I was like, either of those movies could win, and either of them deserve it. Yeah, this is the first year where I feel like I think 1917 is gonna win. Um, it's also like it's also based on this like insanely mathematical voting system that I don't even understand. It's not just like based on like. It's not based on like how many votes something got. It, something has to have gotten like over fifty percent of the voting, and then they just like drop them down like until you get 
one that wins 50% of the voting. Um, so it, that means it's like, it's all based on preferential like ballots. So like the people who are more likely to put Parasite at the top are probably the least likely to put Ford versus Ferrari at the top. And like, so like when movies lose, like get, I read this like long Twitter thread about it, like, which is, I'm just describing something that I saw on Twitter, but still don't fully understand, but I'm still having an opinion about it, which is part of our problem as a generation. Um, but like, it's, it's sort of like, I don't know. It's like this weird system where you can see like what movies will have like the same sort of support behind them versus like, I, I feel like if someone's going to put little women at number one, Ford versus Ferrari is going to be down. So, like, if Ford versus Ferrari gets cut first, then, like, the movies most like that are probably also not going to hit, like, the top five. So, like, I, that's sort of how it is. Everyone's, like, doing their, like, ranked list of nine movies. Yeah. Um, and so, most likely, the top five for people are going to be, like, the biggest ones in contention. Like, Marriage Story is not going to have a shot because of that, because it's too polarizing. Mm-hmm. But... 1917 is like seen as this like artistic triumph for like the technical parts of it, which are like insane. And the fact that it all worked out and the fact that they all did it sort of on the fly uh, is pretty impressive. Whether or not that's going to have much relevance in 20 years, who knows? Mm. But like, I don't know. Is Once Upon a Time going to be, that was my favorite movie of the year, but I don't know if that's going to age as well because it's also about like, historical moment that most people don't actually recognize or understand that's an interesting point i know peter bogdanovich always made a point that the easiest way he always wanted to make historical movies because they wouldn't date quickly so right that 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 was the only reason i would say that it's got an easier easier shot at it um well tyler i kind of wanted to uh it's funny because you know as i mentioned early on we've talked almost every day and it's funny because we were yeah. both on like the complete we we're both the film people that everyone on our thread at talks about but we come at it from completely different side of it where i i'm on the right the uh technical making of and you're on the writing up even though like i used to love writing about it but it's i just want to say it was good talking to you finally actually and yeah yeah, yeah. for sure yeah well um tyler coates i want to thank you for being on the podcast thank you again for having me <laughs> <laughs>